Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, What is the Church? Many think of the church as a building or organization, but scripture teaches something far different. The church is the community of God's people who gather for worship, love, and care for one another and serve God's purposes in the world. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. With that, we're going to go ahead and open up in our Bibles to 1 Peter. I'm going to be talking today. We're going to continue in the series we've been looking at, the church, uh, various uh, aspects. And we're doing this because some of you may have heard that there, there's an event happening on Tuesday. Uh, there's an election. And unless you've been living under a rock, you know how everybody is all back and forth and people getting really nasty about it. And so we're going to talk today as a reminder to us. I want to speak as an elder in our congregation to remind us as a believer in Jesus Christ who you are and where your ultimate loyalty lies. So we're going to be looking at three passages in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. And then chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. And then 1 Peter 5, 13 and 14. This is actually the first two verses in this letter. The, the last section of verses as Peter moves from doctrine to application. It's the last two of doctrine and the first two of application. And then the last two verses in the letter. So they're not just random verses. Peter has these here for a reason. So let's hear the word of our covenant Lord and King together. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then finally, the last two verses in the letter. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. So does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, one of the things that we can see here, sometimes you're not really sure what an author or a movie is getting at. You know, sometimes you kind of come to the end of it, and it's like, I'm not sure what that story was about. But sometimes they give you real clues at, at key moments, either by something that starts uh, a thing or sometime at a key moment in a book or a movie, and sometimes it's the very ending that explains it. 
Peter here, being a simple fisherman, is going out of his way to make sure we cannot miss the key underlying theological motif that he wants his readers to get. He repeats the same idea three different times, and he does it at the three key points of the letter. As I mentioned, it's the first two verses in the letter, and then at the end, uh, all the way up through chapter 2, verse 10, Peter's been laying out doctrine of who we are and what God has done. And then he's going to start laying out the practical issues of how we live. For example, in verse 13 to 17, he's going to talk about how to respond to the governing authorities. In chapter 3, he's going to be talking about uh, husbands and wives. He's also got issues in there for slaves and their masters. Uh, he's going to be laying out, this is how you apply the things that we have talked about. So at 2, 9 to 12, we're at that hinge in the letter. And then the very last two verses in the letter, he's right back to the same theme. So he's doing this because this is the key theology we need to understand for how we live as the church in the world what our relationship as believers and as a church is to the culture and the world around us. So what is this key theological point that Peter's making, and how does it apply to us today, especially in light of the very contentious times in which we live? So let's dive into our text. Now the first thing that Peter wants us to understand is we are God's people through salvation, not by birth, but by salvation. Nobody is the people of God by birth on the basis of their genealogy. Notice what Peter says here in verses 1 and 2. He says, you know, I'm Peter and I'm writing to God's elect. And then in verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, uh, for obedience to Jesus Christ by his blood. He says, look, here's who you are, you people that I'm writing to. And he's writing to people that are spread all over what we would know as Asia Minor. You're, you're different ethnicities. You come from different backgrounds. Some of you are Jew. Most of you are Gentile. But here's what's true of all of you. You have been chosen by the foreknowledge of God, not by your own works, not by what you've done, but by God's own choice. Secondly, you were sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The word sanctified means to be made holy, to be set apart. The Spirit, because the Father has chosen you, the Spirit has set you apart. And he says, and what you are, are you set apart to? You are set apart to obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. The Father has chosen you from all eternity. The Holy Spirit has worked and called you in. And Jesus' blood is given to cleanse you from your sins so that you can now obey him him. Peter begins right out of the gate with deep theology and tells us we are the people of God, not by birth, but by the saving work of the entire Trinity. From past to present to future, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you have been called, you have been chosen, you have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, anointed by the Holy Spirit, set apart and sanctified so that you can now obey God. Peter says, this is who you are. And in case we didn't get it, he comes back to it as he's finishing up this first section of doctrine and moving to application in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Notice what he does. But you are a chosen people, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God or a people for God's own possession. You could translate it either way. Uh, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, uh, but now you have received mercy. Now what Peter's doing here, we may not know our Bibles well enough, but the first part of that where he says you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that's Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, and it's also repeated in Isaiah 43, 21. This is God saying to Israel, you were nothing. You were slaves. But I reached out, and I brought you out by my mighty hand. I brought you to myself. And Moses is about to go up onto Mount Sinai and get the Ten Commandments. And God says, this is who you are. You are my chosen people. You are my priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are people. The whole earth is mine, but you are the people I have chosen for myself. Peter takes that and says, that's true of the church. And he's writing to a bunch of Gentiles, we know, because he says they were idolaters before. And he says, you, therefore, see, this, this was Israel in the Old Testament, but it's now you. You had no claim to God's mercy. Once you were not a people, you were all these scattered, ragtag people, but God has made you his people. Once you were objects of wrath, but now you were objects of mercy. Now, the funny thing is, those phrases there, that's Hosea's children's name. If you go back and you read the book of Hosea, as the people were about to go into exile, Hosea was warning them. You remember he was married to Gomer, the prostitute, and he had to name his children, not my people and not loved. Terrible to be a prophet's son in the Old Testament. You get the weirdest names. And Hosea's children named that. But God does that because he says, I want you to know, once you were not a people, now you're my people. Once you were not loved, now you are loved. You have, you've received my mercy. So again, Peter says, we are not God's people by birth, but we have been made his people by mercy. Third passage. Peter comes back at the very end of the letter, and notice what he says. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you. He's right back to the same language. You're chosen, and there are people in this Babylon, I'm going to come back to that, who have been chosen just like you. And notice how the, the very last words in the letter, peace to all of you who are what? In Christ. Because, friend, if you are in Christ, you are now the people of God. You are, again, God's people, not by birth, but by rebirth through Jesus Christ. And so God's covenant blessing of shalom what the priest used to, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord give you his peace. That blessing, Peter says, now belongs to everyone who is in Christ and only upon those who are in Christ by faith. I do not care what your parents were, your grandparents were, what your lineage is, who you trace it back to. If you are in Christ, you are under the mercy of God. You are covered by the peace, the shalom of God. And if you are outside of Christ, I do not care what your lineage is, what your birthright is, what nation you belong to. You are outside the mercy of God. You are not under God's covenant shalom. It's that simple. The demarcation line that Peter wants us to see is, are you in Christ? God's nation, his Israel, 
finds its fulfillment in the church. Everyone who is chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, and through faith is in Christ Jesus. Outside of that, no claim upon the mercies of God. Inside of that, every covenant blessing, every mercy, and the peace of God defines you. That is the distinction. And it doesn't matter who you are, what your ethnicity, what your background, anything else, that is the defining point. So the great divide, as Peter's writing these people, and remember, there are all these different nations that have been conquered by Rome. They're now under the Roman Empire. And Peter's saying, none of that is the divide. The divide is not your ethnicity, your background, your social standing. The divide is not about ethnicity, sex, wealth, social status, whether you're a slave or a master, it is whether you are part of God's people through faith in Christ Jesus. That is the divide. And so Peter speaks to you and me, and we need to remember this each and every day. You should wake up and realize the most important thing about you is not your family background. It is not whether you are rich or poor. It is not whether you are male or female. It is not your ethnicity. It is not your political party. It is not your social standing with those around us. It is whether you are in Christ or not. That is the divide, friends. And Peter wants us to know that from the first verse to the last verse. He keeps. I mean, you cannot come to the end of this and have missed what Peter is saying to us. Now, What does that mean about us as the church? Well, that means we are God's nation of exiles. That's what Peter wants to tell us. We are God's people, but by becoming the people of God, by becoming home with God, we actually become exiles in the world. Now, why do I say this? Notice how he puts it in verse uh, 1, the very first verse of the letter. I'm Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, writing to God's elect, all those things we just talked about, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is Asia Minor, much of it's Turkey today. And so the word scattered there is literally the Greek word that we transliterate diaspora. This was the word that was used for Jews who were exiled from the promised land, and they were sent throughout the nations, and they were living in the nations. They were no longer living in the promised land. The Greek word for that was diaspora. And Peter says, I want you to understand, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity, your background, if you are in Christ, if you are God's elect, you are God's diaspora. You are spread out. These believers are mainly Gentiles, They live in many different lands, but they are now God's nation. They are his chosen people. So God has a nation in the earth today. It's the church. There is no other nation. God doesn't have multiple. He has the church is his nation. Notice again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where again he's quoting from Exodus, Isaiah, and Hosea. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. All of these are ways of saying you are a nation. 
You may be in many nations spread out right now, but you are actually God's nation. The church, comprised of every ethnicity, spread in every nation, is now God's people, His nation. We're not defined geographically. We're not defined geopolitically. We are defined by the choice of God, by God's saving work in Jesus Christ for us. Now, this may seem strange, but actually James uses the exact same language to begin his letter. James says in James 1.1, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, this is Jesus's uh, physical brother. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Scattered is literally the ones in the diaspora. I'm writing to you who are the diaspora. They're taking this Old Testament motif and saying, just like God's people were at one time there in the promised land and then they were spread everywhere, this is who you are, church. You are God's 12 tribes. You are God's people scattered throughout the earth. You're scattered among the nations. Because see, originally God's people or God's nation was one ethnicity, one nationality, and they lived in one land. We call it Israel. It's what you read through page after page in the Old Testament. Because of the exile, God's people, his nation, was one nationality, one ethnicity that were living in many lands. They were spread throughout the Babylonian Empire. They were spread throughout the Persian Empire. After that, they had been spread throughout the Assyrian Empire. They were one nation, one ethnicity, but they were living in many lands. But in its new covenant fulfillment, God's people and nation, the church, is comprised of many nationalities living in many lands. And that's God's intent and plan. We're not going back to one land. We are by God's intent, the diaspora. We are spread through many nations. Now the interesting question is, and we'll see this is why Peter's bringing this up, what, is, what does this mean for us relative to the country that I was born in? If I'm God's people and I'm God's nation, what about the fact that I was born in America or it could be Brazil or it could be you know, wherever I am? What does that mean regarding that? Well, what Peter tells us is, as God's people, you are now resident aliens living as exiles in your own home country. Okay, now, why do I say that? Here's how he does it right from the beginning. Again, it's at all three of these spots. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. To God's elect strangers in the world. Okay, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, remember he said this thing. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. This word strangers, it's not important that you learn the Greek word, but in both of those passages, it's the same Greek word, peridimos, which means a resident alien. It means as an American, if I pick up and move to the Czech Republic and I get a visa and I stay there and I am living in that country as a resident alien. Peter said, when you became part of God's people, when you became a part of the church, that's exactly what you are in your own country. You are now a resident alien in your own country. When we became citizens of God's nation by rebirth, we became resident aliens, immigrants in our own country of birth. But you got to be one or the other. 
And as for me, I choose to be a resident alien of America and at home in God's country, in God's nation. Because if you're not, if you're completely at home in America, if you're, I'm an American citizen, that's who I am, then Peter says, then you're not part of God's nation, the church. You're, you're to be in God's nation and at home is to be a resident alien in your own country, no matter what that country is. Now notice, I've got in verse 11 there the word aliens. Now he doesn't mean little green people, okay? He's not talking about that. He's talking about it's another word. This is a Greek word, peroikos, which is another word that has basically the same meaning. These are different words that mean immigrants, people who've come in from the outside that are now living in this home, resident alien, a sojourner, one who's living in a country that is not their own. There's another word that gets used in the New Testament. It's the word xenos. If you pay attention, you may have heard of xenophobia. That's when you're afraid of people that are different, things that are strange. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 19, Paul uses that to refer to us, that we were strangers to God, now we're strangers, we're no longer strangers to God's people, we're actually strangers in our own country. In Hebrews eleven thirteen, 13, uh, we're actually told that all the people in the Old Testament that actually became God's people became strangers in the world. It doesn't mean that they were weird people, it means this world is ultimately not their home. They, they sense that they are aliens in their own place of birth. And so the clear implication, and this is taught throughout the Scripture, is that in the New Covenant, you can either be exiles and aliens from God's people, or we can be exiles and aliens from our own country, but we cannot really be at home in both. It's a categorical impossibility. It's not that it's hard, just try a little bit harder. Peter's point is, no, it's not going to, it's not going to happen. See, and you have to remember, the key theme in Peter's letter, he's writing to people who are suffering. They are being persecuted for being strange, for not going in with everybody else. And Peter says, don't count it as strange. It's not strange that you're being persecuted because you're not one of them. You're a resident alien. You're a stranger. You're a sojourner, and they're treating you like you're somehow not part of them because you're not part of them. And if you are, then that means you're an alien to God's people, and you don't want to be an alien to God's people. And Peter puts it as a dichotomy. Choose what you want. As for me, I would rather be part of God's people. Now, the last way that Peter teaches this is he says, what we're like is people living in exiles in Babylon. Remember that little phrase in 1 Peter 5, 13? It's a very interesting verse. He says, She's who in, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now, it's interesting because Mark is probably the author of Mark's gospel, which the early church told us Mark learned from listening to Peter, and here we have the two of them together. But Peter is sending greetings from Babylon, but Babylon, the Old Testament city, had been destroyed. If you remember, it got wiped out. There's no reference of Peter ever being in that area. There's another little small Babylon. There's no reference of him ever being in that area. Most scholars believe, and I think it's really clear, 
Peter's writing from Rome. Who is Babylon? Rome is Babylon, okay? The she who is in Babylon chosen together with you. Peter's saying, I'm writing to all of you churches over in what we call Turkey. I want you to know the church here in Babylon, Rome, she's been chosen with you. We may be different ethnicities, different places. They're in the seat of the empire. You're in a place that's been conquered by the empire. But here's what matters. We've been chosen together. And we send greetings back and forth to one another. And so notice how this fits with the theme of being resident aliens. It doesn't matter if you're living in Cappadocia or you're living in Rome. It doesn't matter if you're a slave that was conquered in time of war or if you are actually in Caesar's household. If you are a believer, you're now a resident alien, no matter where you live. And in fact, you are in Babylon. The church is God's nation living in exile in the Babylon of this world. Now this is imperative for us to understand. The church's relationship, our relationship to culture and government is not Israel in the promised land. It's not what it is. That's not what's applicable. Uh, And Israel living under her kings, but rather Israel in exile under the kings of Babylon. That's who you are, and that is who I am. Spiritually, and we must understand this, when we drive out of here, when we leave our meeting day, see, we're, we're gathered as a little embassy here today. We're a little gathering of resident aliens that have come together to encourage one another. When we scatter and go back out there, where are you entering? Babylon. Now, are you entering Babylon because of whatever's going to happen on Tuesday? No. You're entering Babylon because that's always the way it is in the New Testament. When when the church gathered in July of 1776 here in America and they left the meeting, what did they walk out into? Babylon. Because everything outside the gathering of the church is Babylon. Friends, that's the way it is in the New Covenant. So it has huge implications on how we conduct ourselves in relation to our culture, including our governing authorities and what we ought to expect. Now, I'm going to run through a few of these real briefly, uh, and then we'll actually, for applying the word today, we're just going to be praying for our country and ourselves. So how do we then live as exiles in Babylon? Remember I told you Peter told us You know, in chapter uh, 2, verse 11 and 12, he's starting the application. He's been telling us what it means to be in Jesus Christ. Well, here's what he says right at the beginning. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires. They're literally desires of your flesh, which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So the first thing is, because we are resident aliens, we do not follow the culture's lead on morality. And Peter, that's the first thing out of the gate for Peter. Look, wherever you live, wherever it is in the Roman Empire, it does not matter You are an alien. You are like Daniel and his friends living in Babylon. And that means you don't get your ideas on what is true and what is false, what is beautiful and what is ugly, what is good and what is evil. You don't get them from the surrounding culture. 
because it is going to steer you wrong. You cannot do that. Sinful desires war against your soul. See, here's the problem. I'm redeemed. I'm part of God's people. But I got a part of me that still wants to walk after evil. And what does Babylon do? Does Babylon tell me, no, don't do that. Obey Jesus. Or does Babylon say, hey, you ought to do that. See, Babylon's encouraging me to walk in unholiness. That's what Babylon does. The, the form of unholiness may change. The form of unholiness 50 or 60 years ago in our Babylon looked different than what it does today. But know this, they're always pushing us towards some form of unholiness. So we have to not only resist the evil actions our culture promotes, but we have to positively practice good actions, even serving our enemies. Notice what he says, live such good lives among the pagans. It's not just build up tall walls, don't let them in. He says, you've actually got to be out there among them. This is Peter's way of saying you are in the world, but you're not of the world. See, this is a difficult. This is Jesus' prayer in John 17. Father, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. Okay? I, I got to be honest. See, I don't like this teaching because it's much easier if you just say, Jesus, I can just be in my own little enclave and I have nothing to do with those people, or it's okay to be out here among them because we're all God's people. But Jesus says it's neither one of those. You are God's people among a pagan society. You are God's people in exile in Babylon, and I'm not calling you to stay out of them. I'm calling you to be among them and to be salt and light and live such good lives among the pagans. They're going to accuse you of doing wrong. And they did with the Christians in the New Testament. The very people Peter's writing to, we know from later things, they accused them of trying to undermine the kingdom. They accused them of trying to overthrow Caesar. They accused them of being cannibals. They called them atheists. They said all kinds of crazy stuff about Christians. And Peter said, it doesn't matter. You live good lives. And that even includes, Peter tells us, speak well of your enemies. When, when, they, when they charge you evilly and they lie, you don't lie back. You don't get involved in mudslinging with them. You keep speaking the truth. You keep living right. And so we shouldn't be surprised when the culture makes false accusations about our beliefs, our behavior, and our motivations. I watch Christians all the time, and I know that we don't understand this because we get up there and we're like, oh, they said something nasty about me. Really? Are you really shocked by that? You really, do you think Babylon applauded the Jews who were living in exile? Of course they didn't. Babylonians live like Babylonians. Pagans live like pagans. Friend, that's the way it is. And they're going to look at us. Peter says, see, they think you're crazy now. You used to join in with their stuff. Now you don't. So now they start talking evil about you. I had that exact thing happen when I first became a believer in high school. You go from smoking dope on Friday night and drinking with your buddies to go into a Bible study on Friday night. They don't all stand up and applaud and say, that's awesome. They all start saying nasty stuff about you. That's just the way things are. And so we should not be surprised by this, but we must not compromise because the success of the mission of the gospel depends on us living faithfully as God's people in exile. 
we will not see the gospel prosper by starting to live like Babylonians. And please hear me, I could be wrong. I'm not saying this as a prophet, but I do believe we are going to see more and more and more distinctions. It is going to become more and more and more difficult. There is probably going to be a higher price to pay, and we just simply have to say it. I'm going to be faithful to King Jesus. That's what I am. I'm in exile, and I'm going to live like an exile. My lifestyle is going to look strange. Secondly, however, we have to live as faithful, good citizens in the nation of our exile. Again, see, when I hear that, it's like, well, then I just want to pull back and have nothing to do with all of that. They stay over there, I'll stay over here. But see, we can't do that. And Peter tells us that right in verses 13 to 17. He says, this, so notice this is the very next verse. How do you live good lives among the pagans? How do you, you know, not have your soul overcome by these simple desires? Well, here's the first thing. Submit yourselves... For the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Hear how similar this sounds? Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. So we are called to live as exiles, not as rebels. And this means we are to recognize and submit to our leaders. Now, can anybody guess who was the supreme king, the emperor of Rome, when Peter wrote these words? Nero. Who thinks Nero was a good guy? I've been at the spot in Rome where Nero tied Christians to stakes, doused them with fuel, and lit them on fire. That's the guy. Honor the king. Submit to every governing authority. Has anybody in this room ever lived under a leader that was dousing believers on fire for being believers, putting them on fire? Okay, then we cannot say it doesn't apply to this person. It applied to Nero, who, by the way, put Peter to death shortly after he wrote this letter by crucifying him. Tradition tells us upside down. Is that easy? See, it's not, friends. It's not easy. But notice this is right out of the gate what he tells us. So let me go ahead and say this. Whoever is elected on Tuesday, and it may take a few days to find out, is your president. Okay? Please, please, please do not go online and post, not my president, not my Speaker of the House, not my Leader of the Senate, yes, they are. Whoever is elected on Tuesday. Now, I said this four years ago, and I freely admitted I, I thought four years ago that the election was going to go a different way than it did. And so I warned us then. So whichever way it goes, it doesn't matter. Whoever is elected on Tuesday is the duly instituted authority. Does that mean that I will agree with everything they say or do? Nope. 
but it's a pretty low bar they got to get over to not be Nero and be burning me on the White House lawn. That's the bar, okay? Babylon and exile. Remember, what did they do with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Somebody remind me there. What, what, was, what was done? And if you notice, what's amazing is even when they were ordering evil, our words and our attitude have to be godly. Think of Daniel and his friends. I mean, see, they didn't say, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, ah, I don't have to listen to you. That's not their attitude at all. King, we, we want to obey. We're trying to obey. We, we can't do this. We cannot do it. God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, no, King, we, we cannot obey this unjust law. The attitude is godly because the prospering of the gospel depends on it. If not, we're just other partisans. We're just like everybody else. This is why we're actually told to pray respectfully for our leaders, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. And early believers, we know we have the prayers of believers praying for Caesars of the Roman Empire who were actively persecuting Christians. And guess what the prayers don't look like? Oh God, kill them. Oh God, strike them down. Oh God, they're too evil. We hate, they don't look that way. It's a challenging thing. And remember, Peter wrote this and said, it's, it's not strange that you're suffering persecution. And how long did Rome continue persecuting Christians for? 300 years this went on. 300 years. So, in fact, what we're called to do is to be good neighbors in, uh, and labor for the good of the land of our exile. You remember, this is in Jeremiah chapter 29. You might want to read all of Jeremiah 29 this weekend as we go to the election. God wrote, sent word through Jeremiah to the people in exile because see there were prophets who were saying, no, 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 you're going back home quick. We're going to get back. We're going to get our own king. And Jeremiah had to write and say, no, they're false prophets. That's done. That door's closed. We're not doing that anymore. Okay, you're going to be there for 70 years before anything opens back up. And here's what God told them. Seek the peace and prosperity. The NIV's translated one word, shalom, as peace and prosperity. Of the city to which I have carried you in exile, pray to the Lord for it, because if it has shalom, you will have shalom. So friends, we are to pray and labor and work for the good of Babylon. Not just curse it, not Cut it off. We are to pray for Babylon because the only way we're going to experience shalom is if there's shalom in the city of our exile. I would like, and it's very popular for me to say, hey, it's all going to go terrible out there, but we're going to somehow be protected. But that's not what God told the exiles. And the applicable motif for us is not Israel in the promised land. It's Israel in exile. So we have to, in our context, that means you and I need to pray. It means we need to vote. It means that we need to uh, even perhaps have further political involvement. Or whatever. It needs, that's why we're working with the pop-up pantries. It's not just our congregations. There are others, but there are also even unbelieving organizations that are there, and we're laboring together for the common good. Because if the city of our exile prospers, has shalom, we will have it. And the warning is, if we're 
not praying, not laboring, not engaged, and therefore they don't have shalom, then we don't have shalom. It's a sobering verse. So that's really challenging. Now, I'll talk a little more. This is what's, this is what's known as two kingdoms theology. There's God's kingdom of heaven, and there's the kingdoms of this earth. There's the kingdom of, Luther called it, the kingdom of God's left hand and the kingdom of God's right hand. And we are citizens in both. In one motif, we're, we're exiles, but in another, you're a citizen of America, and you ought to live as a good citizen of America. But we need to remember, where is your ultimate citizenship? It's in heaven. I'm going to talk a little bit more in after hours about you know, what it means for America as you know, a Christian nation and all of that kind of stuff and trying to delve into that. But I want to conclude today and then we'll pray by just reminding us what all of this means is, look, this is a challenging thing. You're in exile in Babylon, but so you, you can't go the way of Babylon, but you need to pray and labor and work for the good of Babylon. That's hard. That's challenging. And the more we're trying to be in the world but not of the world, we have a tendency to run to one extreme or another. I either have nothing to do with it, and then we're not going to experience shalom, or I start merging the two together. But see, friends, we can't do that either. We have to remember our ultimate citizenship and loyalty is heaven, not the United States. Okay? Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. See, these little notes run throughout the New Testament. We just skipped through most of them. Paul writes to the Philippians, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says he's going to come and change us. Now, why did Paul just bring up citizenship to the Philippians? It's because Philippi was a Roman colony. And when you came there, there were signs outside and there were greetings and they told everybody else, you might be coming in from one of these other places where you've been conquered by Rome and you all aren't citizens, but we are a Roman colony. We were set up by Rome and we're all Roman citizens. And Paul writes to them and says, yeah, well, let me explain something to you. Your real citizenship is in heaven. You Philippian believers need to understand, yes, you may be Roman citizens, and Paul was a Roman citizen, and he exercised his citizenship, that's fine, but he always remembered ultimate citizenship is heaven. And therefore, somebody help me remember church history, how did Peter and Paul end their lives? Old men, peacefully, lots of people gathered around them. See, when it came down to it, One was not a citizen of Rome, one was a citizen of Rome, and they did the same thing in the end. They were both martyred because they both said, whatever my earthly citizenship, my true citizenship, my first citizenship, my ultimate citizenship is the kingdom of God. So this is not a plea. Again, I hope you love our country. I came up to the Naval Academy at 17. I went in the Marine Corps, which generally is a fairly patriotic group of guys, I can assure you, okay, served our country, raised children who went to academies and served in the military, okay, I get all that. We should be 
uh, people who love our country. This is where God has planted you and me. That's the reason we've got the docks painted out there in the lobby. It's not just a random painting. It's to say we're here for the world. We're also here for the city God has planted us. But friends, as you exercise your citizenship, here's the leash that keeps Christians from running into the ditch. My true citizenship is heaven. And I can assure you of this, I love our country, but if America ceases to exist, the kingdom of God will continue. If America is no more, or if America has turned completely ungodly and outlawed being a Christian, the church of Jesus Christ is going to continue. The church of Jesus Christ is going to thrive. The funny thing is, see, Christians lost this message. Peter wrote it from Rome. Christians endured 300 years of a bloodbath at the hands of the Roman leaders. And then Constantine becomes a Christian and becomes emperor and actually starts treating the church kindly, and the church completely forgets it. They start putting their hope and trust in Rome so that when Rome actually fell, all the Christians were like, oh my gosh, how will the church survive? And Augustine wrote the city of God to say, uh, it'll survive just fine, thank you. It was here before Rome existed. Uh, Rome put us through a bloodbath for hundreds of years, and now that Rome has fallen, the eternal kingdom of God will continue on just fine. And our citizenship is there. So that's the thing for us, friends. So what we're going to do, I want to encourage you and remind you, we're going to stand together to pray. And as we stand to pray, I want to remind you, which has been a part throughout this series, let's go ahead and stand together. Your identity, my identity, is a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm glad to be an American. I, I thank God. I have visited enough rough places in this world. Okay, I, I can, Tony and I can testify. We've spent nights in villages in Niger where you're 15 or 20 miles from the nearest electricity, running water, any kind of medicine, any modern anything. I come home and kiss the soil. I'm grateful to be here. But my identity is follower of Jesus Christ. Not American, not any other nationality. It is not ultimately Republican or Democrat or Independent or Green Party or whatever else you are. It is Christian. And if you are that, you're always going to feel a bit un at home in everything else. And if we don't, we need to step back and say, why am I feeling so at home in this part of Babylon? Because, friends, ultimately we're not. So what we're going to do we're going to conclude now by praying. And I'm going to, this prayer that I'm going to be praying is based on 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. So I encourage you just to kind of join in with your amen as we pray along. And are we glad we are inside? Yes. Thanks be to God we had wisdom. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are the almighty God the ruler of heaven and earth. And as your people, we come to you now to pray for our earthly nation. Lord, we pray for all those in authority as you have commanded us. Lord, we pray for our president. 
Please give him wisdom to know the right path and fortitude to walk in it. Lord, may his lips be restrained to speak only gracious words of truth. And may his actions and policies establish justice, mercy, humility, and truth. Lord, we pray for the leaders of the House and the Senate. May you guard their hearts and minds so that they would be driven by the common good rather than personal or party gain. May they be given wisdom and ability to pass just laws so that as a people we might do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before you. Lord, we pray for our Supreme Court and all the courts of this land. May they judge righteously, following the law rather than personal preference. May they uphold all life from conception to the grave. May they never show preference but rule by justice and equity. Lord, we pray for our governor, our state legislature, and our local authorities. May they govern not for themselves or their party, but according to what is true and beautiful and good. God, give them clarity, strength of character, and courage to know and do what is right so that our state and city may be a place that promotes justice, that protects the weak, and works for the prosperity of all. Lord, we are privileged to live in a land where we are allowed to select our own leaders. And so, Lord, we pray for this upcoming election. What a privilege we have been given to choose our leaders. May we as a people not take this for granted, but exercise this responsibility with great diligence and with the knowledge that we will give account for this stewardship. Lord, we ask not for justice, but rather for mercy for our land. Lord, we confess that we have turned from you in so many ways. The slaughter of the unborn, centuries of racial injustice, sexual confusion and depravity, the marginalization of the poor and the powerless, and the use of harsh rhetoric that denies even your image in those with whom we disagree. Lord, for all of these reasons and more, we deserve judgment. Yet as your people, we ask for mercy. O oh Lord, grant us leaders who will lead so that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Father, you have said this is pleasing to you, and we know it's for our good. O oh Lord, grant us better leaders than we deserve. And Father, we pray that you would maintain freedom in this land. Lord, as we pray this, we remember that this great country is but the land of our exile. And we only sojourn here for a little while. 
But thanks be to God, we are citizens of your eternal kingdom, our true home. And as we pray, we remind ourselves that our first loyalty is to you and to your kingdom. So we pray for the prospering of your kingdom and your gospel here and around the world. Oh Lord Jesus, you are the only mediator between God and humanity. And you have given yourself as a ransom for us. So, oh Lord, we pray, send your spirit so that we might be saved. Oh Lord, bring revival to your church. May your word and your will reign supreme among us as your people so that we obey you with joy no matter the cost. Oh Lord, please send awakening among the lost. Father, there are so many in our own land who do not know you, who have refused to bow their knee to Jesus Christ. Oh God, open their eyes so that they may see your glory, so that they may repent of their sin, and that they may turn to Jesus Christ in true faith. Lord, you did this for us when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Have mercy on the lost here in our own country. Lord, we know that only if there is revival in the church and awakening among the lost will we see a culture that grows in godliness rather than wanders into sin. So Lord, we pray all of these things for our nation, for ourselves. We pray these things in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And God's people say, amen. Friends, I encourage you, please keep praying. Whether you're on the list or not tomorrow, please pray for the Babylon in which we live, that God would be at work here among our people. I'm now going to conclude with a blessing, a benediction. As I sought the Lord, I'm going to be using Genesis chapter 12, God's blessing to Abraham, which is ours in Christ Jesus. So receive this as God's people, as his nation. God says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Go forth blessed and be a blessing through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.